Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Seems to me that few of us have ever lived in more polarized times, whether it's politics, social issues, race, or gender. We've become massively divided. Even worse, as a society, we've grown incredibly intolerant of people who don't think and believe what we do. To punctuate that point, 40% of people in each of the two primary political parties in the USA that supporters of their opposing party are, quote, downright evil, unquote. You know, there's no doubt that our media fuels this divisiveness and intolerance for other people's views. In 2019, hate crimes reached a 10-year high in the United States. And most of us admit our social ties at work, at school, in our communities have frayed. If there was ever a problem in the world needing leadership, it's surely this one. It's simply unsustainable for us to cohabitate this planet without having greater empathy, compassion, patience, and tolerance for people who are unlike us. So what if there were a set of science-backed techniques for navigating life that could help us overcome our differences and rebuild lasting connections across all of these divides? What if there were a useful set of takeaways for managers and educators of all stripes to create connection even during these most challenging times? Well, our guest today is Stanford University professor Jeffrey Cohen, and he joins me to discuss his new book, Belonging. Jeff's work demonstrates that there really is a way back toward having a civil and a cooperative society, and he provides concrete solutions for improving daily life at work in school and in our homes and in our communities. In his book, Jeff says that all of us feel a deep and essential need to belong, but most of us don't fully appreciate that need in others. So today we're gonna discuss how to remedy this, noting it's pretty unacceptable for life to go on as it has. And with that, let me welcome you to the podcast, Jeff Cohen. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. And I like to just get right into it. So at the beginning of your book, you say that when our sense of belonging is threatened, we're more likely to feel worse about ourselves, perform below our potential, see others as hostile, and deeply undermine our well-being. So tell us what belonging is and why you believe workplace leaders must go out of their way to foster it. Well, the best definition of belonging that I've heard, I actually stumbled on by a former Yale undergraduate who tragically passed away in a traffic accident, where she was grasping for a term that meant the opposite of loneliness. And she was saying, it's not quite love, it's not quite community, it's this sense that we're in it together. And I think that the word that she was probably grasping for is belonging, that sense that there are people in our corner, that we belong to a group that accepts us and to which we can contribute. And a lot of research suggests that this need to belong is something fundamental to who we are as human beings. What does that mean, fundamental to us as human beings? Well, in order to survive and thrive in the world, we need each other. As humans, we're sort of born into the world pretty physically helpless. We don't really have much in the way of physical assets to meet the challenges and the threats of our natural environment, but we do have the superpower of being able to collaborate and work together for common purpose. And that desire to belong and to be part of a larger group enabled us to survive and to thrive. And it seems even to be encoded into our genome. 
recent research suggests that one of the effects of chronic loneliness, for instance, is for the genes associated with inflammation to be turned on at this sort of genetic level, leading to inflammation and cardiovascular disease and other diseases associated with inflammation, such as stroke, accelerated progression of cancer. One of the worst things, one of the worst messages that our central nervous system can send to our body is the message, I am alone. And that just sort of ratchets up this sort of biological threat response where we know we're vulnerable and it can lead to these biological costs that in the short term aren't so bad, but over the long term can lead to chronic illness and significant serious problems. Steve Cole of the UCLA Medical School likens loneliness to one of the most toxic environmental factors out there. So it's interesting that that woman, it was a woman, I think you said, that gave you this definition of belonging and she anchored it on whatever the opposite of loneliness is. And I remember reading Johan Hari's book, Lost Connection. And what he was saying in that book, and I'm sure you've probably read it, is that the incidence of mental health deterioration, anxiety, stress, and all the really dark sides of mental health that we see in society today on a significant increase is a result of loneliness. It's not having enough connections. It's not having a sense of belonging. And I've read stats and it's been a little while since I've read your book, but I'm certainly familiar with the fact that we have fewer friends. You know, there's Bowling Alone was the title of a book. Yep. So I guess my question to you, just hearing you start off with this definition is, if we need it so badly, mm. why are we not seeking it more actively? It's such a good question. There are so many different factors. The need for food and for water is very easily satisfied, right? You turn on the faucet, you get water. But for social connections, it's a little trickier to get or even to register that that's what we need. So there's a few reasons, I think, why we're kind of in this predicament. One has to do with situation we are in in our society with work taking place, you know, at greater physical distances than they did before, with so many of our interactions now being online and through social media rather than face to face. I think changes in the structure of our society, as Putnam discussed, have decreased the number of opportunities we have for these sort of spontaneous associations that used to define us as Americans or used to be much more kind of characteristic of American society, civic associations. One other thing that gets in the way is effective forecasting errors, this idea that we really don't know what makes us happy. Our minds trick us. And I think in some cases, our theories about what makes us happy are just off. And this comes from work by Dan Gilbert and Tim Wilson and many others just showing that we can be pretty wrong in forecasting what will make us happy and what will make us upset. And sometimes this can lead to suboptimal choices. For instance, the choice to pursue status and wealth and fame over just basic connections is one example. People really don't, at least in individualistic societies, they don't have an adequate appreciation of just how vital connections are. And so they might isolate themselves in, in houses away from other people in their community. There's a lot more geographic mobility in our country with people moving away from families in pursuit of careers. So I think some of it has to do with these errors that we make in diagnosing what will make us happy. Sometimes we just don't know our own minds as well as we should. Well, 
You know, I read this article in the Wall Street Journal as I was putting questions together for you, and it's called Americans are breaking up with their friends. And <laughs> right there, you got something, right? But it says that only 17% of hybrid workers, and this is, we have a large audience all over the world, but this is specific to the U.S., have a best friend at work. 17% of people who work on a hybrid schedule have a best friend at work, and that's down from 22% just three years ago. So what are your thoughts about people who say they needn't have work friends beyond what you just said in terms of, hey, we might be tricking ourselves? Yeah. But I really do want to hear you pin this down for people that they're making a mistake by not having closer relationships with people and most particularly coworkers, people you work with, people who you spend so much time with every day. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't you think that connection is vitally important to innovation and creativity and collaboration? That sense that these are people that I care about and I trust and that I'm on the same team with. And I, I, my, my expertise isn't in business so much as in education, but I know in educational settings, that sense of connection of being part of a classroom or being part of a school turns out to be incredibly important for performance and for motivation and persistence alone. You have to kind of feel like there are people here that I care about and that are counting on me. The most important predictors of retention in school and and from what I know, based on the research, the companies that foster a sense of connection, even in small ways, have better outcomes among their employees. I, I love this research by Adam Grant, for example, where mm -hmm. all he does is just make it clear to employees that their work is contributing to the welfare of others. That by, for instance, soliciting calls as a fundraiser, that they are enabling disadvantaged people to go to college and hearing the thanks and appreciation of the people that they're benefiting increases to a dramatic degree their performance and their fundraising over the course of several weeks after that intervention. So, and then in some of our research we've done in laboratory settings and that others have done, even these small moments of connection, such as discovering that you share a birthday with someone, for instance, in math, leads people to be more motivated in math and to persist longer on a math puzzle. So I think that there's a constellation of evidence that just suggests that, yeah, this is a really important source of motivation and persistence. And I would think creativity and innovation at work. I mean, I know that many of these companies where great innovation took place, it was through collaboration and these sort of passive contacts that just happened down on the ground with people having spontaneous conversations that led them down paths that they couldn't have predicted. And I, I do fear that we're losing a bit of that with this long distance working. And as we kind of are trying to work out exactly how to make long distance work work, I think we have to bear in mind some of the things that we may be inadvertently losing. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously, when you talk about connection, we don't connect with minds. We connect with hearts. That's where the connection actually occurs. And so when really for the, you know, the big part of the pandemic was over and workplaces were starting to open up. I wrote an article for Fast Company and basically said that the idea of working remotely 100 percent of the time is so inherently harmful mm. to everyone involved that there needs to be some time spent together for the connection, for the collaboration, for everything that you're talking about, relationship building. And I've never had anybody <laughs> criticize me. People were calling me a corporate shill. And <laughs> like the reaction to it was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that the joy of working from home 
for the first time in all of our lives, like on a permanent basis for two years. When that was threatened by companies saying, okay, now it's time to come back. People were like, I got enough friends. I have a spouse. I got kids. I don't need to be in the workplace with the people that I work with. I can see them and I don't really care that much about them anyway. That was like the stunning response that I got. Yeah. Well, you're both right, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, no. I I mean, let me just say that there, to the extent that I was right. I'm arguing, look, I love remote working. I'm not saying get rid of it. I'm saying keep it on a hybrid. The people that were criticizing me were saying, no, I want to do it full time. I don't want to ever go back to an office. Yeah, yeah. And that's the part that I think is harmful. So do you agree with me? And if you do, it doesn't really matter. But I guess the second question is, how might managers intentionally foster a greater sense of belonging on their teams? Well, I mean... I think that there's a few things embedded in your question that are really interesting to explore. One is just, well, I think one of the reasons people like working from home is that they've been able to foster these connections at home with their loved ones, with their friends, maybe their kids that that had gone neglected for some time. And our culture is very, I mean, speaking as a parent, I mean, I just know how hard it is to satisfy all these roles of being both a parent and a full-time worker and then be a participant in society, being a good citizen, there are just so many demands on our time. So I think that one of the things that's keeping people at home is a very understandable, in many cases, a very understandable recognition that these things that maybe they had pushed to the side or maybe they weren't giving as much attention to are actually vitally important to them and work was detracting from it. Then the question is, how can we create workplaces that honor both kinds of connections? And I really think that that may be the fundamental question that honors the connections that we have at home and outside of work and gives people the space to cultivate those and not a burnout work culture. And at the same time, provides a sense of connection and that we're in it together at work as well. And I think that creating those sorts of workplaces that honor both kinds of connection is is really the challenge. It's really a challenge. I don't think people are making unreasonable decisions in a lot of cases. And maybe some of the reactions that you got are very interesting. There's probably many layers to this. Well, what would your solution be to honor the connections of outside of work? Are you recommending boundaries? Are you saying that managers, employers should be defining when someone's workday starts and ends so that people actually don't feel obligated to jump on a call or respond to text and emails late at night or on weekends to give people the freedom to then reconnect with the very people that they found that they want to be connecting with. Yeah, it's true. It's not an easy question. The book that I wrote isn't really about policy change or systemic change, which I think is important that we need to change our institutions, our laws, create better protocols for addressing work-related problems such as work-life balance and experiences of harassment at work. All those things are totally, totally necessary. What I'm mostly interested in is the things we can do in the here and now at work or at school in our communities to help nurture a sense of belonging. As we're all trying to push this cultural ball forward, address workplace policies, social policies, what can we do as managers, as fellow employees, as friends to make our situations a little bit better? And a lot of the work that we've done is all about this, the power that we have in the situation right here, right now, 
to create connections. And sometimes it's a pretty potent power that we have. So just to give maybe one example, I think that the research on authoritarian leadership that's been done is very interesting versus democratic leadership. When managers have more democratic processes in place, they're getting the perspectives of the employees, inquiring into their values and trying to honor them, even just asking about them. Workplace satisfaction increases and employees perform better. So that's just sort of one example of how down on the ground we can do these little things that can have a big impact. And there are a few others. Share them. Yeah. Another one that we've looked at is what's known as values affirmations. We're simply asking people for their core values. What is important to you? What would you stand up for? What would you die for? What are your most important values? This process, this activity of asking people about their core values helps them to feel like they belong in workplaces and school settings, we found. And it's often just a very simple act of just asking people, you know, what is it that you value? And, and tell me more about why. And this activity has been shown, for instance, in several field experiments to increase the performance and motivation of people both at school and at work, especially those who feel otherwise like they might not belong, such as ethnic minorities or employees suffering from burnout. Another is what we call wise criticism. So one of the tasks that we face we were talking about this earlier. One of the tasks that we face as managers and as educators is giving good critical feedback, feedback that's simultaneously instructive and motivating. And much of the time when we give criticism, we just sort of give people the criticism and think that they should just accept it and comply with it and go on their merry way. But a lot of research suggests that people have these sort of self-serving reactions and defensive reactions to feedback that often get in the way of their ability to learn from it. One of the things that we found is very effective for giving critical feedback is simply to say, look, I'm giving you this critical feedback because I have high standards and I believe in your potential. Mm -hmm. In one study that increased the percentage of ethnic minority students in a school study who revised their essay for their teacher from 17% to 71%. A lot of these little things that we're doing down on the ground are kind of clearing up ambiguity the meaning of criticism when I give it to you is not any indictment of you. It's really a reflection of my belief in you. That's one lesson here. And another lesson here is taking an interest in the humanity of our employees by inquiring about their perspective and their values. So you mentioned values again. What happens if somebody's values don't align? Yeah. So you're going through this exercise and I'm imagining it's in a group, right? It's the team. What are your values? What are your values, Jeff? Why are those important to you? If everybody's saying, I value collaboration, I value teamwork, I really appreciate it when people have one another's back. That's important to me. And then you have somebody, I'm a lone wolf. I don't really like to collaborate. I don't really care about what do you do in that situation to bring people together to make that exercise worthwhile? That's a great question. I mean, that's kind of the difficulty of creating truly integrated work settings where everyone feels like they belong. In a society where there's so much diversity and a wide range of preferences, we have to kind of create situations where we can all feel like we belong and contribute. So in that case, I think maybe there's some way, I mean, I'd be curious to talk about this with you, to kind of integrate those two points of view, that maybe that person would be put in a role or in a position that was more consistent or more aligned with their values and they could contribute that way. Whereas the people who value teamwork more and thrive more under those conditions are put in situations that are more cooperative in nature. And I think that there is no one size fits all. As you know, 
in creating a great work setting or a great education setting. I think a lot of this is what I refer to as situation crafting, kind of crafting these situations that are conducive to bringing out people's potential. And often that means tailoring what the situation at work or at school in our communities to a person specific and sometimes idiosyncratic strengths. I like it when people who are listening in actually take the idea and then go implement it. And so the reason I asked the question was so that they didn't find themselves in a situation where, wait a minute, this didn't go the way I wanted it to. And now what do I do? But <laughs> the, the idea is to honor people for what their values are, not to necessarily take them to task because their values aren't entirely yours. Yeah. I mean, so many of these things are powerful, but fragile, you know, like social life. Right. It's about trust, right? It's about creating trust, creating belonging. Trust and belonging are some of the most powerful human states. I mean, it's some of the most powerful forces in the world, right? But yet they are incredibly fragile. You know, you might ask someone about their values and it comes across as an authentic and genuine interest. But then if in response you say, well, that doesn't really fit in here with our companies, <laughs> it's just going to backfire. These things require a sort of wisdom, I think, a wisdom of social life and understanding of other people's hearts and minds and how they are. I mean, you've written about this, I know. And I think it really is about treating people with dignity. And there's not going to be any recipe for that, obviously. I mean, I'm a social psychologist, so I, I do use a scientific method. We test these strategies, values, affirmation, criticism. But there is no substitute for having a genuine interest and attention to the people who are in our charge and respecting who they are and finding ways to work with them to create situations that bring out their best in which they can kind of contribute to a larger mission. I know that sounds a little vague, but I think what we're doing is offering some strategies for doing that, but nothing substitutes for this kind of really kind of heart space in which you're, you really see respect your employees for who they are and, and have a genuine interest in who they are and how they can contribute. None of what you said is vague. I was actually nodding my head saying, hey, yes, he's got, he's, this is yeah. right. Yeah. So, um, no. And I don't think know. anybody listening thought it was vague either, although, I, you know, I'm not omniscient. But yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. As a scientist, we're always talking about how to operationalize these constructs, trust and belonging. And so I, I think one of the things we're trying to do is give people little demonstrations of concrete things they can do down on the ground to reveal the power of belonging and, and how it can bring out people's best. And I, I think that, yeah, you're right. Even though the strategies are specific, it harkens back to, they always come back to these profound lessons about the importance of dignity. You know, you were talking about command and control, not the language you use, but, you know, dictatorial, authoritative managers. And in your book, you talk about Kurt Lewin and his research on the science of human potential. And I just love this. So tell us what approaches to leadership did he discover brought out the best in people, i.e. workers? And what did he discover about making situational changes and shaping people's behavior? Mm. It is so hard to underestimate the importance of Kurt Lewin's work. And one of my hopes is to resurrect this incredibly important intellectual figure. Social sciences up to the point of Kurt Lewin had been interested in analyzing problems and understanding their underlying causes. What Kurt Lewin did that was so amazing and unique for the time was he was thinking, wait, as social scientists, we can create altogether new situations that unlock new possibilities in people. And so he would craft these situations to show just what was possible in human nature. And 
One of my favorite studies, as you allude to, is his work on leadership, where one of the most important elements of our situation is the person who is creating the situation for us, or at least setting the contours. And he did some great early research just looking at these boys' clubs. And for some of these boys' clubs, these are 12-year-old boys working in various, you know, kind of activities of the era, soap carving, arts and crafts, mural design. In one case, the leader in charge was instructed to be authoritarian, to take this sort of command and control approach, bossing the kids around. In other groups, the leader was given a script to be more democratic, inquiring about the boys' interests and helping them to identify their collective will and create a plan together to act on it. And what he found is that these democratic leaders changed the climate of the group so that the groups of kids that were under democratic leadership, they looked like altogether different kids. If you peeped in on them, you would think, wow, these kids are so well-behaved and so motivated. Whereas the kids with the more authoritarian leaders either became really meek and submissive or became very vitriolic Mm. and hostile towards each other and actually towards other groups. So the leader transformed the climate of the group. And the reason is, is that a democratic leader creates a sense of safety, it seems, a sense that we belong. And so now, because I don't have to be in this self-protective sort of Darwinian mode of making sure my interests are served, I can have more of that pro-social orientation to other people in my group and work together with them and create the reality of contributing to a larger mission together. And that's what he showed with these seminal studies in leadership. He later went on to do some remarkable studies looking at how to help factory workers overcome resistance to change and found that similar democratic procedures were far and away the most effective at maintaining employee morale, increasing employee retention, and increasing productivity, in fact. That when people feel like they have a voice and are part of the larger decision-making, there's a what Tom Tyler calls a sense of procedural justice. That this is a place where decisions will be made fairly, my interests will be represented, and, and then people feel more trust. And they're more likely to give themselves to the larger mission and to one another. Of course, none of these things are recipes. I'm kind of simplifying, but that was the sort of general lesson. And the magic of what Kurt Lewin was showing was the power of these democratic participatory processes. Lewin was very quick to contrast democratic leaders with another type of leader, laissez-faire leaders, who just sort of do nothing and let the group kind of go about on its merry way. Those are not good. But a democratic leader, one that helps the group to identify its vision, work together to achieve it, those tend to be the most effective. It's probably been six or seven years ago, but I had an opportunity to come up your way. I went to Google and I spent the day with their senior management, talent management team. And there was a woman, she's retired, but she was one of their top HR people, Karen May, really one of the original architects of their entire wonderful culture that they established when they founded the company. And we were just talking and she said, along the line of what you were just saying, she goes, what we really learned is the importance of giving people voice. And when she said it, it just pierced me because I knew it having been a manager of people for a very long time, just seeing that this is you're using the language of democratic management and she's using this idea of voice. And so ever since, you know, I've reflected on it and I thought, why is it that some managers are willing to do it and most aren't? And the reason most aren't is because it's messy and it's time consuming. And if 
you ask people what their opinion is and then you go in a different direction and you have to clean that up and people are like, managers are like, well, you know what, this is just too much trouble. So they don't do it. So encourage people listening that despite all that, they have to do it. Well, one of my favorite examples of this comes from outside the world of business in education. And I think it's relevant. This is work by Mark Lepper on so-called expert tutors. And you can look at these tutors as kind of quasi-managers. They're working with kids and trying to help them improve, in his studies, their math performance. And what Mark does is he identifies tutors who are known to be superior tutors and compares them with more mediocre tutors. And he brings them into the lab and has them work with academically at-risk kids. These are kids who are kind of math-phobic, have a long history of failure in math. And what he discovers is that it turns out that the expert tutors are among the most powerful educational interventions out there. They produce these incredible gains in student learning of two sigmas, two standard deviations on average. And Mm. nothing in the educational world is that powerful consistently. An expert tutor turns out to be the most potent educational intervention that's out there. And then so what Mark does is he just looks at what these expert tutors are doing and contrast them with the mediocre tutors to sort of understand what explains their magic. And one of the things that the expert tutors do is early on in the session, they get to know the kid. They ask about their hobbies, explore their interests, talk to them. It's a little bit of small talk where the kid feels seen. Meanwhile, the mediocre tutors just get down to business. They just start the lesson right away. Another distinction, the expert tutors, remarkably, over 90% of their utterances are questions, Socratic questions that they're asking the kid. Very good questions, but questions. Meanwhile, the mediocre tutors are much more didactic. Prescriptive. What the tutors are doing from an outsider's perspective, it seems incredibly inefficient. Like, why are you wasting time on these kind of questions? Why did you just give them the point? Why are you asking all these questions? And yet, making the child feel seen and creating a psychological comfort zone, it allows the kid to show what they know and perform to their potential. And I think we see the same lessons beyond school, at work. I mean, that's one of the lessons that this need to belong and to cultivate it is a powerful driver of behavior from the cradle to the grave. You know, I happen to believe that this is one of the greatest drivers of the great resignation, Mm. that people were working We had COVID instantly. People were deployed to their homes. They're working from home for a couple of years and they start having private time, quiet time, where they start to think about like, is my ladder on the right wall? Am I working for the right boss? Am I doing the right job? Is this the right company? And I think that feeling of, do they even know me? Do they even care about me? And by the way, McKinsey has recently confirmed this, but this was my conjecture a long time ago was that once people aren't seen every day, are you remaining in contact with them? Are, do you know what's going on in their lives? Do you, using your words earlier, do you know what they value right now? Like they have a kid that's struggling on online school and a spouse that's fighting for the same computer or desk. And we've got a, an elderly parent we're taking care of and you're calling me at eight o'clock in the morning and asking me where my report is. I just think people had that feeling that I'm not working for someone who cares about me personally. And this is the antidote. So I just think this is wonderful. And it doesn't surprise me that it would affect a child like this. Yeah. As you think back on your own educational background, I imagine you as a really talented guy, superior intellect, but obviously you had to have great teachers 
that took a genuine interest in you, that brought you along, thoughtfully directed you, and helped you become who you became. I don't imagine you had a lot of mediocre teachers in your life. Am I right? Well, I think we all have, for sure. A lot of them was what I'm saying. But, you know, if you're lucky, you have one. One really good one, if you're lucky. And if you're really lucky, you have more than one. And I I totally agree. There have been people in my life that this is why I, I wrote the book in part is because we have a superpower, I think, as mentors and educators and managers to reshape trajectories. And that's what I've dedicated my research to. And and I do know from my own personal experience, there were so many people that just took an interest that studied me. And I think that that feeling of being seen and being appreciated is just really impactful. You know, just to take one small example, I remember working for one of my undergraduate advisors, this guy named David Dunning at Cornell. And I was a very shy kid because freshman when I was doing some research in his lab. And I collected a little data for him. And he looked it over and he's like, you know, this is really changing. Your data are really changing my view of human nature. I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> it's like, how, how? It made no sense. Oh, you're talking to here? Yeah. And yeah. that experience was very influential to me. I felt very seen. And I don't know if seen's quite the word. I also felt like I had potential. I had the potential to contribute to a larger project. And I think our mentors can do this. And there's a kind of definitely a a heart. You know, so much of this is about feeling and about heart and about having that interest. But it's also a skill set. It's about these little tools, much like a politeness protocol that we can use to kind of better express that interest we have, better serve our desire to be respectful and give attention to those in our charge. And so I think that one of the things that all of this has inspired me to do is to really understand, well, what are the these little things that we can do that can have this magic? And maybe if we can do it, we can figure out a little bit of that, we could make a little more magic happen. You use the word interest, which is something I'm taking away from this conversation, because when somebody shows an interest in you, it almost goes back to Dale Carnegie. Talk to them about themselves, and we all need that. And so I really love that language is sort of punctuation for it. And you're talking about what are the little things that you can do. You also, if I recall in your book, you call them little sins of omission. These missed opportunities to say thank you and the lack of acknowledgement for their contributions. When somebody does something and you just like acknowledge that it was done, but not that they did it or that they did it well or that they did it earlier than you asked for, or they did it with care, that these are really painful experiences. So tell us about that. Well, one of the things that matters a lot in helping people to feel they belong, for instance, just to give one example, is basic politeness. And I know that sounds obvious, that saying please and thank you and to appreciate someone for a job well done. I know it sounds obvious, yet What turns out to be the case is that these obvious things have a sort of non-obvious power. And you see that a lot in research on cross-race encounters, for instance, between police and drivers at stops. There's a lot of research that shows that we engage in these sins of omission and commission in terms of this dimension of politeness, more so when we're interacting across racial lines than within them. We withhold basic acts of politeness, and we are much more rude, or more rude. Sometimes it's more neutral, right? Sometimes more neutral. But uh, this is wonderful research by Jennifer Eberhardt, where she shows that police officers 
black and white when they pull over black drivers are more likely to say, put your hands on the wheel, man. Whereas with white drivers are more likely to say, I'm sorry, man, to stop you. I really was just concerned about your safety. Would you mind? Would you please give me your identification card? They're much more polite. And it turns out that politeness is pretty potent. Politeness, pretty potent. People, when they feel treated respectfully, goes back to Tom Tyler's idea of procedural justice. When they feel treated politely and fairly, they're more likely to internalize the norms of the organization that they're working for. In this case, they're more likely to appreciate the legitimacy of the police. And conversely, when people feel treated rudely at work, there's some great research out of Israel where they show that just one or two comments, rude comments from a supervisor lead even trained physicians to perform worse. So I think that that's one aspect, one little thing that has big effects. And I I think that they're all over the place, these little things that really matter. And when we do a lot of little things, it can add up to a big effect. I agree. Amen. I want to make sure we discuss what you call the fundamental attribution error and how we humans too often misinterpret other people's behavior and treat it as an affront and how we otherwise judge other people harshly based on very little information. I just think this is so universal. Tell us about that. The fundamental attribution error is a term coined by my late colleague. He's recently deceased, Lee Ross, who's worked in this field forever. And One of the things I'm hoping to do is to just popularize his notion of the fundamental attribution error. Also, it goes back to another social psychologist named Ned Jones, who called it the correspondence bias. But basically, the fundamental attribution error refers to our tendency, reflexive tendency, to overestimate the impact of things inside of people in explaining their behavior, such as their grit or their character or their abilities and to underappreciate the importance of their circumstances. And so there's a lot of research showing that when we try to explain people's behavior or even predict and control it, we overemphasize internal factors and underemphasize external factors. We underappreciate the circumstances people are in. And there's many examples of this. One of my favorites is this example in the book that I talk about with Chadwick Boseman, who was a the star of Black Panther, mm-hmm. one of his fellow actors, I, I, this sort of just stuck with me, the story, one of his fellow actors after his death was saying, yeah, man, at the time when I was working with him on another movie set, he, he just seemed full of himself. He had all these people there to massage him. He had his girlfriend there holding his hand all the time. It's like it just his fame had went to his head and he was just demanding excessive pampering. Turned out there was a lot more to Chadwick Boseman's situation than this actor realized. Later, he it was revealed he had stage four colon cancer and he, he died. And on that set in that movie, he was in incredible pain. And that's what was explaining why he was acting as he did. But there was much more going on in his situation, and there's often much more going on in other people's situations than we can imagine. Well, I mean, there's this sort of spiritual law of you know, don't judge. But the fundamental attribution error is something that I think a lot of managers get in trouble with, which is you ask somebody to do something and then they do it in a different way or they somehow it's not going the way you want it to. And so you can assume, okay, well, if I like 
are they mad at me? Or do they think that I'm too demanding? Like all of a sudden we go into this fantasy land of what's going on in their mind and it has nothing to do with what's really going on. And I'm like bad at this. Like I'm not the judgmental, but I am the fantasy guy. And my editor, he's going to laugh at this because he just told me the other day, it's like, a lot of other things could be going on here, Mark, you know? Yeah, that's so true. There's so much more going on, as you said, than we know, especially when it comes to other people's lives. Yeah, people are pretty complex, but their circumstances are often even more complex. And we just don't take the time to understand them as much as we could. There's some lovely research by Juliana Schroeder and Nick Epley on what they refer to as perspective getting. A lot of times when we're trying to understand another person, we try to take people's perspective. We try to imagine what it'd be like to be them. And it turns out that, yeah, we're okay at that, but often not as good as we think. And we're often overconfident. We get it wrong. And so we don't even think to just take the simple step of asking people, what's going on with you? What's the barrier here that's preventing you from doing this job, you know, from meeting the standard? I I really want to understand what's going on in your life. What are some of the barriers? And they show in a number of studies that simply asking increases empathic accuracy. That is, people are much better at understanding people's preferences and and predicting their behavior when they take the time to perspective get rather than perspective take. And it's a step we just don't even think to take that much because I think, I mean, for a lot of reasons, I think we're just kind of, we're full of hubris because Mm -hmm. we, as you say, we're in this fantasy land, but we don't realize it's a fantasy. We start to believe these fictions. Yes. Yes. Like, yeah. And you start telling other people, you know what they're doing over there? They're like, <laughs> like, you have no basis for this whatsoever. And, you know, you're sharing stories and amplifying something that's completely crazy. Yeah. And, yeah. and then right? you make the situation worse. You start right. to judge. People feel like they don't belong, which undermines their performance. And then this is a sort of downward vicious cycle in a lot of cases. Of course, things aren't always that simple. But in many cases, we actually, our attempts to solve problems make them worse. You know, it's interesting because I think about times when people who work for me would come and had the courage, like I'm instinctive. So I'll say something and 25 people will understand what I'm saying. And the one person that doesn't, sometimes they'll come in and say, did you mean this? Like, is that what you're saying? Like, because that I don't like. Yeah. And once I understood how they're interpreting what I'm saying. Oh, no, let me restate this in totally different words so you understand that that wasn't my intention. So my point is, is that it works both ways. We're seeing this standoff in work right now where this idea of quiet quitting, which is truly Mm. just not engagement, same thing we've been measuring for 25 years. But we're calling it quiet quitting all of a sudden. And what it implies is that people are passive aggressively not working beyond work hours. So then the other side of this is the managers start to notice it. And then, so you work for me, they go, well, what's going on with Jeff? Like, you know, I don't get it and I don't appreciate it. And I'm reading that we're going to let these people go first if we're in an economic downhurt. Like, it's like immediate retaliation. And I just think a conversation might solve this, (laughs) you know. So much, so much. Conversations, the lost art. I do feel like so much of this would be solved with, True conversations, and the word conversation has an interesting etymology. It means to turn over together. I love that. Hmm. It's like you're turning over some stone, looking at it together. It's democratic, going back to Kurt Lewin's research. It's a democratic process. Conversations where we're trying to understand one another. So few and far between. Not just at work, but in our politics, for that matter. 
the number of opportunities for civic conversations are just so few and far between now. And I really do hope, I and mean, one of my hopes is that just to show people, no, these conversations are possible. They're within reach. And not only that, it makes life a whole lot more fun and it makes the situation a whole lot better, including for the problems that we care about. Amen. I totally agree with you. And the times when people came to me and said, did I understand you correctly? It gave me an opportunity to fix that rather than allow them to leave and think something badly of me or something badly of the direction that I was giving them and allow that to fester. Yeah. I always appreciated when somebody would give me that because you don't always know how your ideas are landing or your direction is landing. You can hurt people unintentionally. We do this with our children. We do this with our spouses. And you can certainly do it with the people you're working with. And I've learned that just calling it out, saying, tell me exactly what you meant here so that I understand. And you clear the air and, you know, like a duck ruffles his feathers and off he goes. Yeah. And with your affirmation of what they do, it sets a norm that I'm approachable. I want to know if you don't feel good about something I said, I really want to know. And I welcome that feedback. And I know it's hard, but having what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset about Mm -hmm. our managerial capacities or educational capacities is really helpful here. This idea that, you know, we are not finished products ever. We are always works in progress. And the best feedback we can get for improving our skills is honest feedback from others. And so kind of creating norms where you welcome that feedback as you did in that story. I think that not only do you learn from that person, but you invite other people into the fold. And Mm -hmm. I do think that that's kind of a real big issue now. I mean, America, the most diverse country ever, most diverse society ever, that is such an important skill set to have. You know, diversity is an incredible asset, but also an incredible challenge. We're working with people with such a diverse array of backgrounds, diverse range of sensibilities and sensitivities that this American, it's almost like an American skill set of welcoming perspectives and trying to understand one another is just so important in so many arenas. I love so much of your book because just the whole theme of it and the research is phenomenal and not only expansive, but confirming. And there's a part in it where you were talking about, like, we spend so much time picking people for our team. And what if we spend more time creating the right conditions for people on that team to thrive? So before I turn it over to you, what this made me think about was how many times I work with managers who would say, oh my God, look at this team I got. (laughs) Like, you know, they thought every person on the team had to be Aaron Judge, you know, like the superstar. And I was just like, What are you talking about? Your job is to bring the best out in people. That's what leadership is all about. But they were so convinced it was all about, if I don't have the right team, then I can't do anything. Almost dismissive of people. So tell us about this. Yeah, that's a great story. I think too often in so many cases, I'm going to steal from Danny Kahneman here. He has this quip that we've spent too much time trying to make the right decisions and too little time trying to make the decisions right. And I think that applies here, that we spend way too much time trying to decide who to put on the team to make it as good and as strong as possible, and and too little time trying to make the hand we've been dealt work as well as it could, to mix metaphors. And I think it just kind of comes from this erroneous theory that we have that, you know, the big predictor of team performance is the individual assets in them. And I'm thinking of that Google study 
where they showed that one of the big characteristics, the defining characteristics of successful teams wasn't just or so much the assets of the individuals in them, but the sense of psychological safety in the group was, did the manager or the leader create a group where people felt like they could contribute and they had voice? In so many cases, I think we don't think about how we can craft situations to make them at least a little bit better. And almost invariably, they can be a little bit better. One of the things that I'm struck with as a social psychologist is just how much more potential there often is in a situation than we can see. We've done these studies over and over again where you take a minority kid, for instance, or a low-income kid, and you provide them with a little psychological support, and then bang, suddenly they're performing at a much higher level than they were before. Not getting a D or an F, but you know, not getting an A, but getting a, a B or a C instead. And what this tells us is that, yeah, lurking below every situation is a little bit, at least a little bit more potential there than what you can visibly see. And so situation crafting is about creating these openings so that these forces, these untapped assets are more likely to surface. And one of the key things for doing that is creating situations where everyone feels that they're welcome. You just use the word situation crafting. And there's something else I think I have time to ask you, which has to do with you're talking about small little things that can make a huge impact. And I remember years ago, I had the benefit of having an assistant for 15 years. And so in our relationship, I think there were times where I would hand write something and she would type it and send out to everybody. And remember one day she just came in and she goes, did you mean this? Like, did you mean to say this? And I said, well, just read it back to me. And it, the way that I communicated it was like sloppy. And it implied something that I didn't imply and didn't want people to feel. So we fixed it. And I just made the pivot. I'm just going to have her review everything I said. Anything that's important, right? I'm not just, hey, you know, let's get together for lunch kind of a message. But, you know, something that's going out to the entire team directionally talking about our performance or whatever. And I just learned the power of language and what words empower, inspire, and lift up. And I made a commitment that that was going to be the impact. I wanted people to feel something so profoundly positive when they read. Even if I'm saying, hey, <laughs> you're all going to be jobless tomorrow. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, you know, even if I have bad news, you can communicate it in a way that makes people feel something that you want them to. So you point this out in this clever this game that was basically the same game, but in one case was called the Wall Street game and the other was called the community game. So tell us about that. It demonstrates the power of words. This is another study headed up by Lee Ross and Steve Samuels, where they had people play a strategic self-interest game, one of these economic game, these games that economists are so fond of, a prisoner's dilemma game, mm -hmm. where basically as a player, two options. You can either defect and try to grab all the money for yourself, or you can cooperate and split the pot with the other person playing the game, just two people playing the game. And in the study, basically the outcome that they care about is do you defect? Are you a greedy SOB and try to steal all the money, take all the money? Or do you cooperate and, you know, have a kind of communal solution to the situation? You know, long story short is that the name of the game has a dramatic effect. When the game is called the Wall Street game, 70% of people defect. They take the greedy response. When the same game is called the community game, 70% of people cooperate. They do the communal thing. Now, that tells us that the words that we apply in situations have a powerful effect on our behavior, not just our behavior, though, but on our way of thinking about what it means to be a good person here. 
And I think that in these situations, one of the things we're almost any situation, one of the things we're really trying to do is to be a good person. I mean, generally speaking, most people try to be a good person as they see what it means to be a good person. Now, the words that we use to, in this case, define the game tells people indirectly the response that is valued here and thereby changes what they construe to be the thing that a good person would do. And so I kind of look at these studies as demonstrating the power of words to shape our psychology and to shape our perceptions of situations. And there's many other cases, too. Another example that I like a lot is this work coming out of Aaron Kay's lab demonstrating that even just subtly gendered wordings in job advertisements, like saying, we are a strong firm that boasts a talented clientele, that those kinds of job advertisements turn out to be off-putting to female job candidates relative to language that is less gendered and more communal. We are a firm that cultivates many relationships with a diverse group of clients. Those differences in language end up having a pretty sizable effect on women's anticipated sense of belonging at the job and and their likelihood of applying. So again, words can really have big effects on the ways we see ourselves and our prospects for belonging in this situation. So are you particularly thoughtful in, in your own communications that way? Oh man, I wish, I think so. But you know, I think we're all working on this, right? I, mm-hmm. I have so made so many mistakes. I have made so many mistakes. I mean, we all have. I yeah. mean, maybe, maybe not all of us, <laughs> but I know I have. I'll speak for myself. And, you know, I, I'll look back at an email or a test like, what in the world? Was like, yeah. unfortunately, had a little belonging sensor there to <laughs> tell you, wait a minute, don't send this. And I, there's been many times when I've been under stress or hurried or just not at my best, not at my best. And I've written or said, regrettable things. And, you know, I, I, I think that we're all flawed. We were all forgetting. It's amusing to hear you say that because we all have, you know, I think one thing I've noticed is like men will use a lot of sports analogies that just like women don't always necessarily want to hear about small ball and hitting it out of the park and all of that, you know, but I think you're alluding to worse offenses, but I get it. I think if you're intentional, you can do better. Yeah. Not being appreciative, not saying sorry when we do harm, not saying please or thank you. These things are so easy to go out the window when we're feeling stressed or hurried. So I do think this is a skill set that we can all have a growth mindset about. Okay, Jeff, we're going to take a brief break for a segment we call the heartbeat round. And honestly, I've learned from our listeners over and over that they're very interested in learning about our guests more personally. And so we've come up with what we call the heartbeat round so that you'll answer the next dozen questions about you in a heartbeat. Are you game? My heart is very slow. (laughs) that's okay that's actually a very healthy thing if you have variability so you take your time with these if that's where the answers are coming from (laughs) all right number one your thoughts on remote work in one sentence just because you're at a physical distance doesn't mean that you can't maintain social connection one book you wish every person on the planet would read the Tao Te Ching the leader of any era you most admire There are so many, but one that has really influenced me is James Baldwin. Oh, me too. One of my favorite quotes. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Love. A cultural value every organization should have. Working for a higher purpose, whatever it may be. Your best synonym for the word heart. 
Love. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Authoritarianism. In many ways, we can be little authoritarians in our day-to-day lives and in the workplace. The life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier. The power of belonging and our ability to cultivate it. One subject you believe all managers would be wise to bone up on. Situation crafting. Their ability to create situations, even at the most seemingly mundane and micro level, that bring out people's best. A well-known organization you most admire for their overall culture and respect for employee well-being and belonging. I think Stanford does a very good job. I have to admit, I don't have a lot of experience with many organizations, at least firsthand. But as imperfect as any organization can be, I really admire the way Stanford embraces the value of diversity and tries to make it work at a pragmatic level. Prediction about the future you're pretty sure will come true. A countercultural reaction against social media. Wow. Wow. We could have a whole conversation about that. That's interesting. And finally, the most important lesson you've taken from the two-year COVID experience. The importance of connection, even at a time of physical isolation. Fantastic. Awesome answers. Thank you for going through this with me. Oh, thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation and we've covered a lot of ground, but I want to make sure before you go that if there's something, some takeaway, some idea, insight, piece of research from your book about belonging that you want us all noodling after this is over, forever hold your peace if you don't use this opportunity now, Jeff. I would say don't underestimate the potential to connect and the power of connecting. I think a lot of the research that has happened over the past several decades in social psychology and in other fields illustrates the impactful effects of feeling connected, feeling like we belong for a wide range of outcomes from politics to school to work, and simultaneously illustrates our own power to create belonging, even in the smallest corners of social life. Brilliant. The name of your book, Belonging, the Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides, Jeff Cohen, thank you so very much. On behalf of my audience, you're a very insightful and thoughtful and human guy, and we really appreciate you. Thank you, Mark, for the stimulating, delightful conversation. I really, really appreciate being on your show. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Very recently, someone asked me why I bothered to have a leadership podcast when, in her mind, this topic was such a crowded space. It was a legitimate question. There really are a lot of management and leadership podcasts out there. But my goal in launching this podcast four years ago was to help show managers a new and more enlightened way of motivating human performance in our workplaces. And I wasn't deterred by the fact that you as a listener have many, many podcast options in this category. Coincidentally, I learned recently that there are nearly 3 million total podcasts being aired in the world today. And according to the website Listen Notes, I also learned that the Lead from the Heart podcast ranks in the top 2% of all of them when it comes to the size of their listening audience. And that is thanks to you. As we close, I want to thank my talented and wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Randy Young, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. In case you've wondered, our theme music is the 75-year-old jazz classic, Take the A-Train, performed by the BBC Big Band Orchestra. And before I go, I will leave you with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. 